Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Jessica, this is an interview on a topic that most people would think immediately up front would be like, ugh, insurance. I almost want to like beg everyone listening right now, please stick with us. Please stick with us. This is actually a really good conversation, despite the words life insurance being in the title of this episode. The topic may sound boring, but boy, Matthew Friedson from Greenberg, Wexler, Eig just does a fantastic job of talking about this in a normal voice, very easy to understand, and in a way that is relatable to everybody out there, whether they're considering life insurance, they have life insurance, combination of both, talks about it from the perspective of term insurance and whole life insurance and when it's appropriate, when it's not. I thought that there was so much to take away from this. I mean, Matthew has over 15 years of experience working in the life insurance industry. And I think his both technical knowledge and his passion really comes through. So I learned a lot of sort of tips and things to be thinking about with life insurance over the course of this conversation with him. And I really hope everyone's listening. I hope that you come away with some takeaways as well. Yes. And I'll tell you, I think I'm going to encourage everyone that's listening right now to make sure you stick around until the very last part of the interview, because it wasn't until the very end of it that Matthew gave one of the best tips that I've ever heard. And I was frankly, with over 20 years of experience, I wasn't even aware of the tip that he gave out about the insurance contracts. And I just think that that is worthy of everybody listening all the way through. That was a fantastic conclusion to this whole interview. So with that, here is our interview with Matthew Friedson of Greenberg Wexler Eig, and we hope you enjoy it and stick around till the end for that great tip. Matthew, welcome to the show. Insurance is one of those complicated topics, right? And it can be made to sound really great. And so that enters into people getting sold something or enters into this buyer beware situation where people really need to put on that sort of hat of looking at the product and trying to evaluate whether or not this is a solution that is in search of an actual problem, or is there actually a problem and this is a solution for it. And so to people who are listening, if they're considering buying an insurance policy, or if someone is pitching them on an insurance product, what are the top things that they need to ask or be aware of anytime the topic of buying an insurance policy is introduced? Such a great question. And first and foremost, thank you for having me on the show. I'm a big fan, so it's pretty cool to be sitting with you on this side of the table today. By way of background, we'll talk mostly about my expertise in the life insurance space with estate planning and business planning context. Certainly can dive into some other things as well. I feel like I've seen it all until the next day. But I think you're exactly right. I always ask myself when people come for second opinions or we get brought in by financial advisors, family offices, and attorneys to double check what somebody is perhaps getting sold. 
is exactly what you said. Is it a problem in search of a solution or a solution that's looking for a problem? I like to say, is it the tail wagging the dog or the dog wagging the tail? So that's really the first question that I ask. What's the problem here that we're trying to solve for? And that's the question I think any buyer should ask as well. The other thing that I will mention is there's a lot of kind of seminar selling these days, or it used to be pre-COVID free lunch steak, you know, listen to this great this great product that exists. I'm always wary for the clients out there and, and the potential buyers who go to these seminars or listen to what I consider system selling techniques. I much prefer, and the way that our firm works is we work coordinating with the other advisors on the team. So it's not this segmented purchase of a particular product or selling system. It's much more a coordinated approach looking at all the different aspects of the planning, figuring out where the gaps are or what the problems are, and then kind of this iterative process of does insurance play a role or can an insurance product play a role in a solution for this client? And if so, then working through the process of figuring out, well, what type of product, what's the duration, et cetera. Yeah, we like to frame it in the context of what is the insurable interest? What are you trying to insure? And typically when we deal with it on the wealth management side, we see the insurable interest is, well, I need to make sure that my spouse has enough money to pay all of the bills. If I pass away, my salary goes away. That's an insurable interest. Insurable interest could be very high net worth person subject to current estate tax situation and my estate will be taxed at some level. And I would like to have an insurance policy that offsets those taxes so my family doesn't have to maybe liquidate a privately held company or a piece of property or something like that that they're going to be taxed on. The insurable interest thing is always, in my mind, a great way to frame that question and that situation if you are a purchaser. But I think also something, and Matthew, feel free to elaborate on this, something that I've seen, you know, as a planner is this is a client has already bought an insurance policy and how the policy was assumed to perform in the original as sold illustration is really not lining up with how it's actually performing in reality. Yeah, we tell our clients, almost all of our clients, we can only guarantee you one thing, that what you're seeing here isn't going to happen. A lot of times insurance is sold by illustration and looking at an illustration, it's typically a pretty rosy picture, especially over the last 20 to 30 years where interest rates were obviously much higher in the 80s, 90s, early thousands than they are today, which has had a massive impact on performance of insurance policies to probably a lesser extent equity-based or separate account-based products like variable life products as markets have done pretty well. But either way, it's not going to happen the same way as the illustration shows. It could be better, it could be worse. And one thing that we always tell clients and advisors is that these need to be monitored and they're typically not. Typically, they're put in a drawer, premiums paid as billed by the insurance carrier. And the client thinks, as long as I pay this, everything's going to be great. And only to find out when they're in their 80s, uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s that maybe that's not actually true as there are a lot of moving parts and dynamic 
pieces that involve performance of these contracts. I would say a third of my firm's practice is insurance consulting reviews for clients, existing insurance portfolios, benchmarking them to what the as-sold illustrations were and or benchmarking them to the existing marketplace of where products are today as there are product enhancements over time. We also provide benchmarking reviews on an annual basis for performance-based contracts, not term contracts, but all permanent insurance policies because we know they're not going to perform the same way as the expectations were on day one. I think that's such an important value proposition too, Matthew, because we see so many of the policies that come to us when we are conducting a wealth management review or doing financial planning, especially for a new client, where we recognize that the insurance policy was sold. And because it's a commission product, there's little incentive for the agent who sold it to then follow up and do any servicing. So to people who are listening and people who are considering engaging in an insurance relationship with somebody to make sure that they're asking the question that addresses your very point, which is, great, you're going to sell me this insurance policy. What is your follow-on servicing, monitoring, and reviewing process with me? Or is this a one-and-done situation? And listen very carefully to that answer, because I think it's unusual to find a relationship with someone like you or your firm that does provide that follow-on review and monitoring. That's very unusual, and I think it's very valuable. Thank you, Dave. You're right. The commission structure in the life insurance space is such that it incentivizes the new sale or the new placement of product. So most people are out there trying to find the newest buyer. We call a heaped commission structure, which most people think you're building this big renewal stream, but it's really all about the upfront commission to pay the bills, make your income and profits in the life insurance space. I think a few important points are one, the higher end advisors should have a team, which includes service staff. They should be investing in more of a collaborative team in their office. A single person who doesn't have a team who's 60 years old, how are they going to service business for the long term? It's great to ask that question because the answer might not be a good one. Another thing is independence, knowing where the market is from different carriers, from different perspectives in the market, different carriers underwrite differently. So another good question that I would ask is, are you a captive agent? Or are you independent? And are you tied to a particular company or incentivized by a particular company to sell their products? And can you describe real quickly when you say captive, what exactly does that mean? It's changed throughout the last 20 to 30 years. It used to be back in the old glory days of the life insurance business, every life insurance carrier had their own field force. And some still do today. The big ones that come to mind are the large mutual company carriers, Northwestern Mutual, New York Life, Mass Mutual, but there are others. Some are more captive than others. For instance, some of the mutual companies consider selling other products selling away, and you can actually get fired as an agent of that company for doing so. Others are a little bit more open infrastructure because they have to be to compete in today's world, especially for the affluent, ultra-affluent clients, but they're still incentivized to sell for their company 
before they look at the other product. So they may be able to tell you, we're allowed to sell with other companies, but if they end up selling you their company's product, once again, ask questions and that should bring a little red flag up. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. There is inherently a little bit of a conflict of interest there, even if they can sell other things, if they have an incentive. I think from the consumer perspective, even if, let's just say you're buying just a very simple term life insurance policy, the idea of working with an independent insurance advisor who's going to be able to do, I loved how a client put this to me once, the kayak of life insurance, be like, I want to go to Barbados. You go on kayak and you can look at like all the different prices, all the different hotels, and you can compare and you can find the best one for you. An independent insurance advisor is going to be able to do that same thing. They're going to be able to go out to a dozen different carriers, run your life insurance quotes, look at the different pricing offerings for different term and amounts, and you can pick the best one for you as opposed to having to go to each carrier on your own and do like a price comparison or potentially being pitched a product to buy that may actually end up being more expensive to you, unbeknownst to you, than another carrier could give you. There's a few pieces to that, especially as the sophistication level increases. And I say sophistication, the sophistication of planning level increases. You know, for the new age in the insure tech world, there are a lot of resources online for buying insurance. What I'll say is that an independent broker, like my firm's independent, we work with about 25 carriers. You're probably looking at the same 25 carriers online that our firm works with. And there's almost always a broker involved. So even though I don't want to say the name of this dot-com insurance provider, but they're a brokerage company. They've just figured out how do we have an online storefront instead of an advisor. So what I'd like to say is, you know, if it's very simple, you need a half a million dollar term policy, maybe you could do it all online. But if it has any sophistication to it, there's no added cost to using an independent broker that you can actually speak to or meet with, have a Zoom call with in today's world. And it's really same pricing, just added value service. That's not to say there's anything wrong with a captive agent, right? So I will use buying a car as an example. If I walked into a Ford dealership, I'm not expecting to learn about a Chevy. But I know that. What you're saying is that there are, not that these exist in the car industry, but you walk into and there's like, they sell every car every brand, you would come in and say, here's the problem I'm looking to solve. I have a family with six people in it. I've got inner tubes and rafts and all kinds of crazy strollers and things. And I'm looking for something to, to solve that transportation problem. You wouldn't say like, let me show you this Porsche 911 over here. This is so sexy and fast, right? Because you're a Porsche dealer. I think there are pros and cons to both of those things. And it's really incumbent upon the person who's evaluating these to understand what it is that they're dealing with, whether it's a captive agent or an independent agent. And I think you can, personally, I see more pros on the independent side like yours because my choice is really great and you're actually solving a problem and being more of a problem solver than a salesperson of a product. I think it's an interesting analogy because with insurance, you're buying a contract. So it's a little different than a car. Not to say that there aren't times when we've reviewed policies or taken a second opinion and said, that works. But if it's one in 10, that's not necessarily a good hit ratio, if you will, or a good batting average. So with a car, you've probably either have some emotional tie to a brand or you've done online research and you know the type of car that you want because it fits the rafts and the bikes and the family and the price point. I don't think that people know 
that all of those specs when you go into a, an insurance acquisition process. And it also, I would at least say, get a second opinion, even if you go with a captive agent or captive agency, get a second opinion from someone who's independent. So you at least know what else is out there and the decision that you're making. If you only know one thing, it's hard to make that decision, which is different than the car purchase because you know the other cars that exist. You're going to that dealership for a reason. With the insurance acquisition process, you're comparing it against really nothing. Which could make it appear like a commodity but I'm not so sure that insurance contracts, I don't think they are commoditized. What's an example of something that you would look at when evaluating an insurance product from one provider or another that could be a differentiation? Is it service? Is it, hey, great, I've got this life insurance policy, but there's all this fine print and turns out that I bought this thing and it really doesn't solve my problem. There's got to be a lot of fine print. I'm sure they are not commoditized. Yeah. I think you said it at the at the top of the program, insurance is deceptively complicated. That's kind of our firm motto. That's a motto that I go by. And why do I go by that? If it was a commodity, I wouldn't have a consulting practice. People wouldn't come to us to say, what do we do? We have this stuff or we need to acquire insurance. Dave and Jessica said our state planning calls for X there'd be one insurance carrier if it was a commodity. It's kind of like, where do I start? There's so many nuances to insurance products and contracts, and it's about knowing what those nuances are. And then how do we find them? How do we compare them? How do we peel back the onion to understand the what-if scenarios? So one thing that I like to look at, we'll kind of segment term insurance with permanent insurance. Permanent insurance is certainly way less of a commodity than term insurance, but I don't even think that term insurance is a commodity. Starting with permanent insurance, we try and do a few things and I don't want to get, I could probably talk for an hour on just nuanced contractual details in permanent life insurance and I don't want people falling asleep listening to your podcast. Really the what if scenarios are where we try to go first and then also looking at stripping down to figure out the cost structure of the product. How are the costs charged inside the product? Kind of like you would do in expense ratios and different funds and things like that. We like to do that on our side as well. It's just hard to find and it's not typically shown. So we look at that as our job on behalf of our clients and their advisors to strip down products, figure out where the costs are. How can we find the lowest cost, most efficient way to solve the problem, but also that performs very well in the what-if scenarios. What if we miss a premium? What if instead of 5%, we get 4% in the projected returns on the product? What if we get even less than that? How do these things play into how it performs? And it's vastly different carrier to carrier and contract to contract. Those are such important things to be asking and knowing about and getting advice on, like you suggested. And then on the term insurance side, there's really one thing that I dive into pretty deeply. There's a contractual provision called a conversion provision in term insurance. Most contracts have them in today's world to compete in the kind of what's become a commoditized space with online purchasing, et cetera. So most say that they're convertible, not all, but most do. But the big two questions are, what are they convertible to? 
and to what age can you convert them? So many products now to become cheaper and come to the top of the list when you're price shopping, they've changed the conversion provisions to either convert into a really terrible product so they know no one's going to do it, even though they say it's still convertible, or they limit the time duration that you can convert, the first seven years, 10 years, not till the end of the term. And you're talking about converting from a term life insurance policy that once it ends, it ends, it has no value to a permanent life insurance policy that would exist in perpetuity as long as you're funding it and would have a cash value to it. Sometimes have a cash value. Typically what we see in our world, in the estate planning and business planning world, where it really becomes valuable is twofold. One, if there is a need late in life for typically trust-owned life insurance for estate or business succession planning, and there's been a change of health. So if you bought a policy when you're 50 and now you're 70, it's becoming the end of the term and you were diagnosed with cancer or had a stroke or heart disease, You know things happen as people get older. Now we've built in a lot of flexibility into their planning where they can turn a switch and have permanent insurance that's not underwritten, you're essentially getting the rates or the health classification that you qualified for when you were 50 years old. Yeah, that's interesting. I I think most people go into term insurance thinking about it to cover a specific need in a specific time. And I don't think most people buy a term insurance thinking about, okay, what may I actually need at the end of this 20-year term? What may my life look like? And we may not know. So why not build in the flexibility if it costs an extra 20 bucks a month or sometimes two bucks a month, depending on the level of coverage, you're not typically paying that more for it. If it is a planning scenario or a client that may need flexibility or may just have a complicated planning scenario today, that we want to build some flexibility for the future, it always makes sense to add that extra layer of flexibility for very, very marginal cost difference. I can actually personally relate to that because I have a term policy through my business, right? And the insurable interest was if I died, there would be a hole in the partnership and somebody running the business and everything else that would have to be filled by the rest of the remaining owners hiring somebody. Well, now I'm over a decade into the term policy and my insurable interest has kind of changed a little bit, right? The business is running really well. We've got succession planning getting put in place and things like that. And I'm not so sure that the insurable interest is the same. That conversion option gives me the flexibility to say, hey, my insurable interest has changed now. Maybe it makes more sense to convert this. That resonates with me when you talk about the flexibility that's afforded for just a little bit more. I look back and I think that was a really good economic decision that I made when we did that. And Dave, I think you bring up a really good point because one thing I neglected to mention when I talked about policy reviews, I said, The glaring issue is that there's policy changes that happen or performance issues and people are putting it in a drawer not thinking about it. Maybe even more so, suitability changes over time. People's life changes and their insurance should mirror those changes. What other part of your planning do you stick in a drawer and not look at for 20, 30, 40 years? No, that's why you guys are on their team because you look at things on a moving basis, a dynamic basis. Their planning's not static. You didn't make a plan 20 years ago, and that's what their exact plan is today. Life changes, life happens. So we should look at insurance as part of that planning paradigm and dynamic planning paradigm as well. 
I think Jessica and I, one of the things that we've experienced when we sit down and we do our monument blueprint meetings with new clients that are coming in, and even to a lesser extent, our existing clients is that I think there's a natural tendency to segment the different things going on in your life and not necessarily or intuitively connect them. What are some of the things that you see as a benefit when firms like yours and firms like ours are working, the client has the two different entities working together on this versus people who are putting these decisions in silos and not having them synchronized up. Maybe you can give us an example of how well that does work. One of the things our firm focuses on and one of the ways we've built over the years is working in coordination with the planning team. So we are really subject matter experts on the insurance planning side and typically get brought in by the attorneys, the financial advisors, family office, et cetera, because we take a coordinated approach and we want to make sure that just like you said, that it's not segmented in silos, that it is this coordinated effort to make sure the insurance planning matches with the overall planning objectives of the client. I think it protects the client from a fiduciary perspective. They have multiple eyes on what we're doing. All clients should come to you if they're thinking of a large insurance acquisition or someone's approached them to do so and perhaps get a second opinion. But like we said in the beginning, What's the problem we're trying to solve? How do we work through that? That's the question that we're working on with the advisory team and taking the approach that it's not just the insurance and the financial management, financial planning, but it's also the estate planning. It's also the business succession planning if they're a business owner or in a real estate family, et cetera. I want to pick up on something that you just said there. It's a little bit of changing gears, but it's definitely connected. A very of-the-moment topic right now is potential changes to tax law. And one of those changes, we don't know yet, but may be a decrease in the federal estate tax exemption amount. And oftentimes, as you said, people are buying permanent life insurance products because they are trying to cover an estate tax bill when they die. So in your opinion, how would a change in tax law affect, you know, the planning strategies that you are using with insurance? Because a lot of our planning is estate planning based and insurance utilization in the estate planning and trust planning structures. This is obviously a hot topic in our world. I was on a call earlier this week with a policy analyst getting the skinny on where he thinks things will land both from an estate and corporate tax planning perspective, but also income tax changes are on the table as well. That's to say there's a lot on the table and there are a lot of, you know, we have the Democrats right now that have control. How much control depends on a couple of votes that they need. I do see changes on the horizon. I think it's likely imminent. The question is where it's going to land, not if changes are going to happen. So we've had a lot more discussion as a firm with advisors, with clients who are kind of on the border of doing planning. And now they're saying, all right, it's probably time to execute or at least get ready to execute, do the pre-planning or pre-funding to be able to turn it on if and when we understand when changes will be made. The policy analyst, and this isn't coming from me, so I don't want people lining up saying I was wrong or right, but he said that the likelihood is that estate tax changes will probably be effective 1-1 of next year. And he sees it falling. We already have the sunset on the horizon for a state tax exemption going from 11 million and change per person today back to the pre-tax cuts and jobs act rate of in the five and a half million dollar range. 
it could just be that, that the sunset happens earlier in 2022 instead of waiting till 2026. But then you have these clients with $10 million or more of assets. And of course, that's including business interests, et cetera, who now need to do planning, whereas in a $22 million joint exemption range, they had no estate taxes or federal estate taxes to deal with. So you have that middle pocket of people in the 10 million plus range that should be thinking about these things now. How can we plan? What strategies can we put in place? I'll be the first to say it. Life insurance for estate planning is not a one size fits all, or it's not the panacea. It, it has to fit. It's not for everybody. And there are other strategies that may or may not work as well. So we should go through a process to determine, is life insurance planning a fit? If it is, what type of trust structures we should have to hold them and how should we fund them? Jessica and I were recently having a conversation with a client, and this is a great segue into it because it's not just about the taxes that you have to pay. It's about what's available to pay the taxes in the event that you do have to pay the taxes. So- I'm just going to make up a very simple example, and I'm going to round numbers here, so I don't want a whole bunch of comments that I didn't get the exact dollar amounts right. Let's just say a husband and wife have $100 bucks in the bank, and the sunset kicks in in 2026, go back to $5 million a person. They pass away. $10 million of that $100 million is state tax-free, $90 million, roughly 50% tax on that. You're writing a check for $45 million. Great. You got a $100 million stock and bond cash portfolio. You write the check for $45 million out of that, distribute the rest of the kids, it's over and done with. Totally different situation. This is what Jessica and I were having a conversation about the other day was when instead of $100 million of stocks, bonds, and cash, it's $100 million of ownership in a privately held company or a combination of a privately held company and real estate and things like that. Now, all of a sudden, the IRS is knocking on the door for the $45 million and you have illiquid assets. It certainly is the first question we ask of what is the asset structure? Where does it live? Is it liquid, illiquid? Kind of getting the facts of liquidity and illiquidity as well as cash flow producing assets and non-cash flow producing assets helps us understand how we can structure things in a way that makes the most sense and is most efficient. Now, we have clients who have $100 million who end up purchasing insurance to fund estate taxes, even though they have cash, I can explain a few reasons why. The more obvious clients who insurance is it, life insurance is a good fit for are the illiquid clients who either are real estate families, closely held businesses, et cetera. So I think it really depends on the client. You could have a client who has $100 million of business or real estate who says, I don't need my kids to be rich. They can sell the business and give it to charity. We don't need to do any planning. Sell the business and give whatever proceeds go to charity. And if my kids get $10 million, that's $10 million more than I started with. And then you have clients that are worth $100 million who want the zero going to the government and the most going to their kids or grandkids or future generations through dynasty trusts. So it really is client-centric. And that's why we talk about goals and objectives. What makes them tick? Is it charity? Is it their children, their grandchildren? Is it education? They want to buy the next five generation homes, you know, in their neighborhood, a boat, a yacht. People just have different things that make them tick and what they want to use their money for. Some care about giving it to the government. Others really don't. And Jessica, take a second to talk about the importance of owning that life insurance inside of a trust too, because that's also a very important issue. 
Yeah, I think that's something that we work with trust and estate attorneys often on is a client may own a permanent life insurance policy in their own names, which is fine. But the challenge is, is when you are bumping into that estate tax issue where your estate is going to be worth and you know, have a tax, is those death benefits when you die, if you own them in your own name, they're going to be included as part of your estate. So it's potentially you are setting yourself up for you've bought a life insurance policy to fit a certain objective and unwittingly you're kind of cutting down the amount of the death benefit that you think is going to be used for taxes. It's all of a sudden going to be taxed as well. So that's where we often work with clients and their trust and estate attorneys to establish something called an irrevocable life insurance trust or an ILIT. Is that oftentimes you'll hear the acronym. And that's a way for an irrevocable trust in my mind. It's kind of like a wooden box. Once you put an asset inside that wooden box, you hammer the top shut, it's kind of in the box. You can't take it back. And that's what the point of the life insurance is, or setting up an islet is, is that you're putting the life insurance into that wooden box, into the islet. You're creating distance as far as ownership from yourself and the policy so that when you die, you don't own the policy. The islet owns the policy. And the islet was an irrevocable trust. It's the wooden box. It's out of your control. And so those assets then usually are not going to be clawed back into your state and are not going to be subject to a state tax. So that's where kind of going back to, I think, what Dave was saying earlier about coordination of all your advisors is you've got the insurance person, you've got your planner, you've got your attorney making sure like this is a perfect example of a one particular item needing all three advisors working in coordination to make sure you, the client, you, the, the consumer are getting exactly what you're getting. A lot of people ask just very fundamentally from the ground, why is life insurance used in estate planning, right? If somebody's worth 20, 30, 40, 50, $100 million plus, what do they need life insurance for? And the islet is a big piece of that, or SLAT islet, a lot of different acronyms going around these days and what the hottest trust structure is. But if you think about it this way, because it's out of your estate, Instead of giving, let's say you want there to be $10 million at the end of the day to be in the islet or in this out of the estate structure, this wooden box that's not includable in your estate, instead of just gifting $10 million into that trust to seed it, you can set up a $10 million life insurance policy and give installments, which are also considered gifts and premiums each year of let's just call it $100,000. So over your lifetime, you're making a little bit of a gift each year to end up getting at time of death that $10 million instead of having to make that full gift up front. And then of course, the other tax structure of a life insurance policy under 101J is that the death benefits tax-free. So you have this tax-free element to it as well, instead of putting money into this trust and getting taxed at the highest income rate on dollar, just about dollar one. It's such an important thing for anyone out there who is considering life insurance or who has insurance to make sure you don't play, you know, I've got a secret and not tell everybody about what's going on because insurance is one of those things that has to sit in the middle of a triangle. It's the insurance agent and the company that's servicing it. It's a trust and estate lawyer, and it's the wealth management team. And when all those three points are connected by a triangle with the insurance policy and the client in the middle is where I see the best success. I would like to wrap up with just a quick question and get your opinion off the cuff about folks out there who are listening that made it all the way through. This is the treat, right? This is the good one here, the end. I think there's a lot of people out there who get pitched 
life insurance as an investment strategy. I think there's pros and cons to that. I would like to hear your opinion to have you share with everybody who's listening when they should and should not be evaluating life insurance with the primary purpose of being an investment, because I think there's a lot of that out there right now being sold. Yes, it's probably the hottest sales technique or sales process in the life insurance space. We do very little of it, but that's not to say we don't do some of it because there are good fits for it. Just to take a step back, life insurance cash values grow on a tax-deferred basis. You can withdraw up to your basis tax-free, and then you can take loans from the policy tax-free. Now, there needs to be a lot of management involved in that because that adds a lot of complexity and moving parts into an already fairly complex structure. So I think one thing people need to note is it's not as simple as the illustration shows. Illustrations can make things look very sexy. Thankfully, there have been some regulations over the past few years, specifically in the index universal life product space, where most of this is being sold to eliminate or at least pare back some of the illustration games that are being played so that it doesn't look like the best thing that's ever happened in the investment world because it's not. I think understanding how the product works is important. Most people don't. They just think, oh, you can never lose money because there's a floor of zero. Well, that's not true because there's underlying cost of the insurance structure. If you get a 0% return, you're going to be negative. So I think understanding the product structure is important reading up on it, talking to your advisors about it. Do I see it working and fitting? And probably 5% of the scenarios out there where it's sold, I think it makes good sense. It's typically ultra high net worth clients that either have a very high income or have an existing islet or irrevocable trust with a lot of money sitting in it that's very highly taxed and creating what I consider an insurance wrapper. And what that does is, and the design that we typically impart is the lowest amount of life insurance and the highest amount of cash accumulation so that you're mitigating the underlying costs of the structure. And that also reduces the transaction costs, the commissions, all the other things that put drag on life insurance policy cash values. So there are some times where it makes a lot of sense. There are more times where it doesn't. I think the question's that should be asked, or what are the costs of the structures on an annual basis? They should be able to provide a chart in the illustration system. It's always an added chart that the agent has to click an extra box to show. That's just to show expenses. Wow. Just to show expenses. Yeah. That's a great tip. I didn't know that. I'm so glad you said that. That is a fantastic tip. Thank you for saying that. And then to me, the bigger piece here is does the tax deferral outweigh the cost of the structure? What's the break-even point for that to happen? So what's the taxation of the assets that you're putting in there? What's the underlying cost of the structure? And if there's a point where the tax drag is more expensive than the cost of the insurance structure, then it's a win. But if the cost of the insurance structure is higher than the taxes that you would need to pay, you're essentially buying tax deferral at an extra fee or an extra cost. And that doesn't make sense. Of course, unless you need the insurance too. And that's exactly what I was going to say, which was you got to understand that you're buying insurance, not for the purposes of insurance, but for the purposes of the tax advantage. If you're in a low effective tax rate, probably makes less sense. So I was going to ask you just generally here, if you're in your 
late 20s, early 30s, and you're in your career and you're making a salary and trying to save money for a house and down payment, and your college roommate comes to you and says, hey, I got a job working for an insurance company and let me show you this great tax advantage way to save you. Like, is it likely that that is not a good solution for somebody who's a younger person relative to like a one percenter who is extremely wealthy with a lot of serious taxable income? Almost all of the time, that person should be buying term insurance. And again, I would say perhaps convertible term insurance. So when they are a partner at the law firm or founded their own business and have substantial wealth or potential wealth, there are some options there, even if they had a health change, but term insurance just about every time. Such fantastic tips. I'm glad we saved those for the end to make everyone listen all the way through. <laughs> we should have told them there was a present at the end, so they actually say. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll add that into the intro. We'll tease everybody into staying here. So yeah. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. I think that was really great. Well, thank you guys again for having me. It was a lot of fun. Look forward to doing it again. This is a great conversation. And I think I learned a lot, which means I know everybody listening will be learning a lot too. So thanks again for your time and uh, look forward to catching up with you. Hopefully we can get in a round of golf over the summer. Sounds great. Okay. Thanks again. Thanks guys. 